all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. And welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry, and I get to be the host on this weekend before Memorial Day 2021. Holy moly, time is just flying by. We want to welcome you to our program today. We've got some great guests. We're going to be talking uh, with a representative from USAA, a representative from the Yankee Air Museum, and our foreign affairs specialist, uh, Rebecca Grant, is going to be on in the second half of the program. So we encourage you to stay with us, and I think you're going to learn some interesting things today. I did want to remind you that we are sponsored by Legal Help for Veterans. Uh, Legal Help for Veterans specializes in veterans' disability claims. Give them a call if you have any questions at 800-693-4800. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, uh, they are the nation's leading third-party authority for the certification of a veteran-owned business. For more information, go to their website, nvbdc.org. If you are a veteran-owned business and you want to do business with the federal government or many corporations, you need to be certified as a veteran-owned business. The Eisenhower Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan and Jacksonville, Florida, is an after-the-impact care program for people who are uh, suffering from traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, not just veterans, but they also help first responders and athletes. Uh, for more information, please go to Eisenhower.com for more information. VetBiz Central, Veterans Helping Veterans. These are assisting veterans, active duty guard or reserve members in the formation or expansion of their businesses. Go to VetBizCentral.com for more information. U.S. Wings, the home of the finest leather flight jackets in the world. Uh, for more information, you can go to uswings.com or give them a call at 800-650-0659. I also have to remind you all to register to win a Maverick flight jacket from the new Maverick movie, uh, Top Gun 2. That is coming out <laughs> eventually. But we gave away our first jacket last month. Really exciting, but you've got to register to win. So go to veteransradio.net, click on the jacket, and give us your information. We will announce the winner uh, next week during our Memorial Day program. So uh, make, don't forget, register to win that. And also the uh, Charles S. Kettles uh, VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, is a sponsor. We can't do any of our programming or anything without their support. So we encourage you to uh, if you'd like to support us that's the important thing if you'd like to support veterans radio go to our website and uh, click on sponsors and we've got all the information there for you or if you're interested in finding out more you can send me an email at dale.veteransradio.net all right we're going to take a real quick break and when we get done we're going to be coming back with our first guest and that is going to be john bird a retired uh, navy rear admiral and he's going to be talking about a special poppies program that USAA is sponsoring um, for Memorial Day. And following up that is going to be uh, Kevin Walsh. And Kevin is the executive director of the Yankee Air Museum here in uh, southeast Michigan. And he's got some great news about Thunder Over Michigan. So stick around. We'll be right back. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. 
Are you a veteran or a military spouse interested in starting or growing an existing business? Then you want to connect with VetBiz Central, Michigan's only veteran business resource center, providing free one-on-one business counseling services, including research plans and preparing veterans to be lender ready. If you're in business, VetBiz Central offers comprehensive strategic marketing strategies to help you connect to corporations. They are one of 20 centers nationwide devoted to veteran business development through the U.S. Small Business Administration Office of Veteran Business Development. Vets helping vets. Visit their website at VetBizCentral.org or Call 810-767-VETS. And welcome back to Veterans Radio. I've got a great guest and a great story for you all today. Uh, It's John Byrd, a retired vice admiral and senior vice president at USAA. USAA. They are working together with poppiesinmemory.com to put together a virtual wall of over 645,000 poppies. And so joining me on the line right now, as I mentioned, is Admiral John Bird. And welcome back to Veterans Radio, Admiral. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you and to discuss this uh, very significant event. Well, it it, it really is. And so um, I guess I'm going to ask you to give us a definition of what Memorial Day means to you. Sure. Um, I consider Memorial Day, which is, you know, 31 May this year or by law, the fourth Monday in May our most sacred and cherished holiday, because it's the one day we set aside a year, one day to remember the men and women who gave their lives for our country, for the freedoms we enjoy. And to take one day and remember that ultimate sacrifice is very important. So that's what it means to me, Dale. Well, it it, it certainly is. And I, you know, sometimes people get it confused with Veteran Day, Veterans Day or Armed Forces Day and so on. But really, this is the only day set aside for all of us to remember those who died in the service of their country. And I, I want to emphasize that for, for everyone out there. And so USAA has gotten involved in a, in a particular program. Can you describe that to us today? Sure. USAA was founded by the military for the military, for the military. So remembering on Memorial Day, or as you say, celebrating Veterans Day or Armed Forces Day is part of our DNA. And so what we've done to highlight the significance of Memorial Day is bring forward the idea of wearing a poppy, or as you mentioned, uh, poppyandmemory.com, where you can dedicate a virtual poppy, because the poppy is the flower, the symbol of remembrance. And so what we've done in the past when we weren't faced with this pandemic is put together a poppy wall, quite impressive, uh, 645,000 poppies recognizing each man and woman lost since World War I in service to our country to raise awareness and bring remembrance of those men and women. And this year, like last year, we're having to do it virtually because of the pandemic. The two years prior, we took it to the National Mall. And with great reception by folks who came by and saw the wall and learned about the poppy. I can only imagine how impressive that must have looked. I'm even getting emotional just even thinking about what that must have looked like. You know, so it is an emotional experience, and I can tell you being next to the reflection pond, you know, right in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial uh, at night with the red poppies and backlit, it is emotional. And when you think about that, it is uh, it is tough not to be emotional. I mean, 
uh, to think about men and women, even very recently, who die in service to their country with tragic news for their families. And then we just should be thankful that we have such heroes that will dedicate their lives for us. Oh, absolutely. So what do I have to do if I want to, say, dedicate a poppy myself to, you know, a, a, a friend of mine who died during, in my case, the Vietnam War? How would I go about doing that? Yeah, for sure. Well, you would go to poppyandmemory.com, and when you went, get to that website that USA created, you would learn about the poppy, you would learn about the poppy wall, you would know about the history of uh, in Flanders Field, which was written by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, and the Monina Michaels, who followed up what we shall keep the faith. But in there, it would also tell you how to dedicate that poppy, and it gives you, you know, a series of steps and instructions how to do it. A couple of years ago, I, I did that, and, and it's a good thing. You know, it is a small thing to do uh, to show remembrance. You can also, uh, you know, wear a poppy on your lapel. I do that. We have a poppy pin. Uh, just something during the day. Talk to friends, family. As you said, remember your comrades who were lost in combat. Mm-hmm. Well, you, this is also working in conjunction with the American Legion and the VFW. Isn't that correct? That is correct. When we created the poppy wall, the 645,000 synthetic poppies that fill that wall, we got great support. And we have a great partnership with the American Legion and the Veterans of Foreign War. And they participate at the wall, you know, hand out more poppies that people can wear. So two wonderful organizations made up of uh, great Americans who also has part of their DNA want to see Memorial Day remembered. So it, this uh, site is open currently, so people can go in there and um, not purchase, but uh, they can sign up to have a poppy with the, you know, dedicated to a memory of, of someone that they loved. That's exactly right. It's part of our program of hashtag honor through action, you know, take action to honor it, do something to remember, you know, too often Memorial Day gets relegated to the beginning of summer and cookouts and mattress sales and you know that's fine but just remember why we're able to do all that it's because these americans gave their lives absolutely so uh, john uh if i can get you to give the website one more time and and we encourage people to go that uh go to it and to dedicate a, a sure poppy. sure poppy in memory.com poppy in memory.com i would encourage you to visit it you know, dedicating a poppy is great, but even if you don't, it's very educational. It's very well done. You get to see the poppy wall as it was shown there on the National Mall that I described. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the site right now, and it's 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 okay. very very colorful, of course, and uh, it looks like it's <laughs> yes, e- it is. <laughs> and it looks like it's it's uh, easy to to maneuver and to move around in. And, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of history in there, uh, not only of Memorial Day itself, but the, the the poem that you mentioned in Flanders Field and all types of different things. You know, when you think about, you know, 645,000 men and women who sacrificed their lives uh, for this country, this is a this is a very easy way to honor them. It is. It's easy. And, you know, um, we can never thank them enough and we must never forget, you know, the greatest casualty in all of this would be to be forgotten, to not remember them. Absolutely. And if we don't 
talk about them than when they are forgotten, and we'll never let that happen. I want to thank you very much, uh, nope. retired Admiral uh, John Byrd from the Senior Vice President of USAA, uh, in conjunction with uh, the poppyinmemory.com. Thank you very much for being on the program. Hey, thank you. It was a real pleasure, and I appreciate you having me. Thank you. It's always good to talk to you. They're back. Yankee Air Museum's Thunder Over Michigan is back this summer, and we're so excited to have on the line with us Kevin Walsh, Executive Director of the Yankee Air Museum. Kevin, welcome back to Veterans Radio. Thank you, Dale. Always a pleasure to be here. And isn't it great to hear those words, we're back? It's back. (laughs) (laughs) After, After such a devastating 2020 for, you know, obviously the uh, the the world, um, you know, and, and going through a global pandemic, it, it is really nice to start to see a, a return to normal. And uh, and our, our volunteers and, and all our supporters and team members, we can't wait to bring Thunder Over Michigan back to to the great state of Michigan. Well, we are very excited and we're asking everybody to make sure that they mark their calendars. It's August 7th and 8th. And the uh, star attraction looks like it's going to be the uh, Air Force's Thunderbirds this year. Yes. Uh, you know, it's something that uh, as a result of a number of schedule changes uh, this year, um, we were able to pick up the Thunderbirds. We were not anticipating uh, having the Thunderbirds uh, at the show this year. Uh, but by a, a number of circumstances, the stars aligned and uh, we were going to have both the uh, the Thunderbirds and um, the F-35 demo, which we've, we've never had the F-35 do a demonstration before. Um, and, you know, it's really the tip of the spear of, of the fifth generation fighters, uh, that, uh, the men and women are flying in the, in the Air Force today. Um, also in the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, both fly the, uh, the F-35. So, uh, this is a chance to see, uh, uh, you know, these incredible, incredible machines and, uh, and see what the men and women, uh, of our armed forces do for us each day. Well, I, I know that it's, it's really exciting. You're also going to have uh, the, the largest collection of Mitchell B-25 bombers uh, will be there. Um, but there are going to be some adjustments. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and absolutely. so I want, yeah. so I wanted you to, you know, <laughs> we're all not going to be able to get out on the airfield and wander around like we did, you know, a couple of years ago. So what conditions are, are, are you going to have for people to observe the air show? Yeah, so we've redesigned the show. I mean, let's let's be honest. We're not back to normal yet. Um, and to hope that we would be back to normal on August 7th and 8th, um, I've said, said it many times, hope's not a good strategy. Um, so we need something that works today, uh, that the air show could actually go off today and uh, still be compliant with the current restrictions and also this, the current guidance that's being given to uh, to the U.S. population. So we're going to move the show to a drive-in format. Now, a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to be trapped in my car watching the show. No, the way we are going to do this, we're going to create a very spacious uh, um, spacing between each of the cars so that you're able to get out on the passenger side. You bring your own chairs, uh, your own lounge chairs. You bring your own personal umbrellas. You bring your own food. Uh, bring your own non like beverages. Bring the favorite mm-hmm. games for the kids to play. Uh, but you sit beside the car, and it's a complete drive-in experience. So another thing that's very unique this year, Dale, is that 
you will come in for either a morning show or an afternoon show. Much like movie theaters, you pick mm -hmm. your time that you want to come, and we're going to do the show twice each day. The morning show ends with the F-35 demo as the featured act, and the afternoon shows will end with the Thunderbirds as the featured act. So there's actually four different shows over the two days, so your time on site is much shorter, um, but it's it's all about the aerial experience and the aerial display this year. Um, and we've got a heck of a lineup. Well, it, it certainly sounds like it, Kevin. And uh, I know I'm really excited to get back out there and see these planes uh, moving around. And, and I know that it, the museum itself, is has that reopened? The museum reopened uh, in June of last year uh, under under the guidance uh, of reopening and under um, uh, a COVID uh, program uh, for for both uh, you know reopening and uh, operations. Um, we we were closed a couple of weeks longer than um, than you know the, that we were actually uh, given permission to open at the beginning of June, and we we took our time and reopened a couple of weeks later. Uh, but we have been open consistently. Uh, since uh, June of 2020. So um, very proud of the team, uh, very proud of uh, the mitigation efforts, um, and uh, you know, very proud of the fact that we have not been involved with any community spread whatsoever um, and have executed our operation um, very well um, and very comfortably. And, and so we're, uh, we're excited. We've, we've been open. We're, we, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a perfect time to start coming and, and getting back out there um, and re-engage the, the families, um, you know, and, and come on down to the Yankee Air Museum outside of the air show experience. Right. And uh, as I mentioned, we're talking with Kevin Walsh, executive director of the Yankee Air Museum, um, and rides are still available. So and, yeah. and they have an operational <laughs> Huey for you rotorheads out there. <laughs> yeah, we we have not forgot about our rotorheads. We love our rotorheads, and in fact, I'm becoming a rotorhead. Um, never thought I would be, but uh, boy, the the love for helicopters is is huge, absolutely huge, and what a visceral experience, uh, um, and a, and a price point that is affordable for folks. $99 a seat, $89 if you're a member. Um, we'll take you for a ride in our, our Vietnam-era uh, Huey helicopter. I, ha um, I, ha actually I, I have to jump in on this real quickly, though. Yeah, the, yeah. the helicopter that you have, based on the history, was located as a 240th Salt Helicopter Company, the Greyhounds, mm -hmm. And yep. they were over in Bearcat in in Three Corps of Vietnam, and I'm just mentioning that because I spent a lot of time uh, in Bearcat. I wasn't with them; I was with the 195th Assault Helicopter Company. But I am very familiar with the Greyhound, so I'm excited to get out there this summer and get my ride. Yeah, that's awesome, deal. And and thank you for your service, and we thank all all your listeners for their service. Um, it's an honor to honor our Vietnam veterans with this helicopter. Um, we know it, it's obviously a, a true 240th assault helicopter company airframe, um, but we, we look at it as a bigger picture that we really are honoring our Vietnam veterans uh, across the across the board um, with this aircraft and keeping it flyable and, and giving people an experience of a ride in this aircraft and making it affordable for people to experience, um, you know, what it was like to fly in this incredibly iconic aircraft of, of the Vietnam era. <laughs> that is true. It's kind of the, mo yeah, the model T of aviation. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 we digress, and I want to make sure we get back and let people know that in, you come on over to southeast Michigan uh, August 7th and 8th, and you're going to be able to see the Air Force's Thunderbirds. You're going to see B-25 bombers. You're going to see F-35s. 
it's going to be a great, great weekend. Um, and I encourage people within the listening area of our voice, no matter wh- what affiliate you may be listening to, come on out here to Southeast Michigan and check out this air show. It's, it's always been amazing, and we are very excited that we're able to get it going again. Yeah, thank, thank you, Dale. And I should mention that because of the format, we have uh, limited tickets available for each show. There's only so many cars that we're going to be able to um, host at each show. Um, and the tickets are selling, <laughs> they're selling very fast, uh, uh, because of course, uh, we can't have the normal, uh, you know, uh, right. 35, 40,000 people walking around at a mass gathering yet. Um, so, uh, I encourage the listeners to go to yankeeairmuseum.org slash airshow and buy your tickets for either the morning or afternoon shows. Um, or, or buy both if you'd like to, um, and support the, support the Yankee Air Museum because the net proceeds of this event, uh, directly support the, the Yankee Air Museum and our, our mission and, and efforts to, uh, to keep aviation history and, and our national accomplishments alive. Okay. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for being on the program. We want to be able to uh, talk with you up until and including the air show. So everybody stick around. We're going to have more updates on the Yankee Air Museum and the Thunder Over Michigan uh, right here on Veterans Radio. Thanks, Kevin, very much for being on the program. Thanks, Dale. Again, always a pleasure. Okay. All right. Don't forget. Yankee Air Museum, Thunder Over, Michigan, August 7th and 8th, 2021. You don't want to miss it. The Thunderbirds are going to be there. We're going to take our second quick break of the afternoon and be back with our guest, uh, Rebecca Grant, who's going to be talking about everything in foreign policy, everything military. Don't miss it. Stick around. We will be right back. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Marine First Lieutenant James Sweat destroyed seven enemy aircraft in one battle. Details after this. Lieutenant Sweat led a daring flight to intercept a wave of 150 Japanese planes in the Solomon Islands area on 7th April 1943. Lieutenant Sweat unhesitatingly hurled his four-plane division into action against a formation of 15 enemy bombers and personally exploded three hostile planes in midair with accurate and deadly fire during his dive. Although separated from his division while clearing the heavy concentration of anti-aircraft fire, he boldly attacked six enemy bombers, engaged the first four in turn, and unaided shot down all in flames. Exhausting his ammunition as he closed the 5th Japanese bomber, he relentlessly drove his attack against terrific opposition which partially disabled his engine, shattered the windscreen, and slashed his face. In spite of this, he brought his battered plane down with skillful precision in the waters off Tulugi without further injury. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend relative maybe it's you even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support you don't need special training to help a veteran in your life even small actions can make a world of difference if you know a veteran in crisis please call the veterans crisis line 800-273-8255 800-273-8255 a message from the u.s department of veterans affairs
All right. Well, we're back right now, and uh, joining us on our line is our favorite national security analyst, Dr. Rebecca Grant. Uh, Dr. Grant, as most of you listeners of Veterans Radio know, she's been our, our expert oh, for years and years now, it seems like. Uh, she is uh, known for uh, being on other programs, not just Veterans Radio. She's been seen on Smithsonian, Fox News, CNN, and other outlets. And uh, so we just wanted to bring her back. We've had a change in administration. We've got a lot of different things going on in the world. We are going to touch a little bit on what's going on in Israel and the Middle East. But first, I got to welcome back Dr. Rebecca Grant. Dale, I'm delighted to be back on Veterans Radio, and I am ready to go a little bit in-depth on some of the topics. We have seen a very, very active couple of months on the international scene, Team Biden facing a lot of challenges and I'm eager to talk about what's going on out in the world. Right, and I guess the first one um, to go to, so we can get it in, is to talk a little bit about Afghanistan. Let's do that first. Afghanistan, this is uh, going to be probably President Biden's signature move this year. So uh, just to review the background, you know, in, in February of 2020, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo signed an agreement with the Taliban for U.S. and NATO forces to get out of Afghanistan. Where that stands now is uh, President Biden has kept that agreement from the Trump administration. He's just moved the deadline a little bit so that withdrawals are underway right now with the plan is to pull out uh, nearly all U.S. forces along with our NATO allies by September 11th of 2021 and bring the Afghanistan war to a close, at least for the U.S. Wow. I didn't realize that the, uh, the, the Allies were also pulling out at that time. Uh, so, so what do you foresee as happening? So there's great concern about what will happen first as that withdrawal carries on. And, Dale, they've actually put in a few additional forces to make sure that there is security around that withdrawal from Afghanistan. A big milestone a few uh, days ago was completing the pullout from Kandahar Airfield, the scene of so much action over the past 20 years. Uh, but that withdrawal from that sector is complete. So number one is to have the security for our forces and our allies as we come out. And then the plan is to hand over to the Afghan National Security Forces, their Army, and especially their Air Force. We have spent the last 15 years building up capability within Afghanistan's military, and now they are really going to be put to the test. You know, our senior commander there, uh, Frank McKenzie, says that the Afghans are really pretty good at the special forces and light operations that we've trained them for. I'm not saying they're as good as our fellows, but they are pretty good. And they've improved with their use of air power. They use helicopters. They've got a real mixed fleet of helicopters and some other aircraft to try to conduct that surveillance and fire support that was the main tactic of the Afghan war. So here's a chance to see if Afghanistan security forces can hold the line against the Taliban. Do you see any reason why we would get reinvolved in that? That is hard to say. And we have said that if, uh, if there's the need to, we always have that option, right? Special Forces, Air, and Navy always ready mm -hmm. to go. But the 
plan now is that the risk of terror attacks from that area have been greatly reduced. In fact, the agreement calls on the Taliban to take care of the other terror group in country, and that is the ISIS branches that are active in Afghanistan. And I think what we're going to see is a struggle between the Afghan government and the Taliban. The Taliban think they can dent the Afghan government in some military strikes. Afghan government thinks that they can hold firm, and they've moved one of their vice presidents, Rashid Dostum, a warlord, from the government to be actually head of Afghanistan's military. That says to me that quite possibly they are planning to do some operations to clean out known Taliban nests. I think all observers think that there will be an upsurge in conflict. The question now is can the Afghanistan people uh, really have this settled for them? Remember, this was all a civil war. And the question now is can Afghanistan's you know, democratically elected government hold the line, and then come into some sort of political arrangement with the Taliban. That's what we hope will happen. No one expects us to be free of violence, but we really want to see the violence against Afghan civilians go down. And a big spoiler here, of course, is ISIS that operates in Afghanistan and what they will do. Now, supervising all of this, uh, just to fill in one last thing here, is what's called the extended troika. And that would be the United States, Russia, China, and Pakistan, who meet very regularly and have agreed to make sure that this conflict doesn't spill beyond the borders of Afghanistan. So we're going to have a lot to watch as the U.S. and NATO forces leave. Uh, it certainly is going to be interesting to see what happens. I hate to, I hate to, well, I won't be a pessimist. This will work. This will work. <laughs> um <clears throat> I'm hoping. Uh, you just mentioned a little bit about Russia. Let's let's just touch on them. Uh, again, we've got Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Putin's messing around with them again. What's going on with that part of the world? If only we could figure out what <laughs> Vladimir Putin really wants. Uh, we do know that, that what he hates probably more than anything is NATO. And in the time that Putin's been around, NATO has, of course, expanded, in his view, right to his door. So we look at his uh, activities in Ukraine and in Belarus as putting together what he calls an anti-NATO buffer. Now, the man is really does sort of still live in the Cold War, mm -hmm. but it's very, very dangerous. And, you know, the, um, of course, he annexed Ukraine, uh, the Crimea, which is you know, obviously down in the Black Sea part of Ukraine. He annexed the Crimea in 2014. And there's been a great concern about what would then happen in what they call the Donbass region, where there are uh, Ukrainian forces and Russian forces and really still an ongoing conflict that's uh, caused a great many casualties. So what we've seen this spring is that Russia has put a lot of military forces onto that border. I think a lot of people uh, believe that Putin is hoping for a provocation that would allow him to step across uh, under the banner of supporting um, uh, Russian, uh, uh, ethnic Russians in that region. Uh, you know, it's all made up, of course. But the question is, does he really want to step across and take control of the eastern Donbass region? As we know, he uh, blocked out that little niche of the Black Sea up above of the Crimea, recently closing off the Kerch Strait, at least until the fall, so he's pushed back pretty hard. Now, Russia maintains it's just an exercise. They can do anything they want with their 80,000 troops uh, or more. 
on the Ukraine border, but I think he really is watching to see if the Biden administration and NATO are distracted enough not to respond. Um, NATO does actually keep quite a bit of activity there in the Black Sea region. They watch that very carefully. And we have, of course, given lethal aid to Ukraine and quite a bit of military training as well. Those are all aimed at deterring any further moves by Putin. But honestly, the ball is in Putin's court. There's always people out there that just want to keep pushing, isn't there? Yes, and of course with Ukraine, which uh, has been independent now for, for many decades, but was a part of Russia for so long, and some say there's a domestic Russian angle to this as well. If you ask the average Russian on the street, they sort of still think of Ukraine uh, like we think of California. You know, it's part mm-hmm. of us. It belongs to us. It would be the right thing to do. And then, of course, Putin, while he's been solidly in power for quite some time, he does have some domestic opposition, and the, um, it's thought that the military adventurism down along Ukraine plays well with his main supporters in Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, time will tell, but it certainly remains a very, very dangerous situation. And there's some other elements, too, uh, involving Germany, um, natural gas pipelines, and all the very, very complicated elements of keeping Putin's Russia under wraps. Well, I... I, I... I always enjoy talking with you, Dr. Grant, because you make things that are so darn complicated understandable. And even though they're still very complicated, I don't think the, 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 the normal listener understands how complicated and how inter, intertwined all of these different regimes and leaders and everything are. And I, I want to thank you. We've, before I let you go, not today, but just to thank you for, for clearing this up for so many of us. Well, can you imagine what it's like for, you know, for our NATO commander, for instance, you know, they get briefings every day on every little detail of this. And then really for uh, the Biden administration and our top officials, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, they have to look not just at, at the latest coming out of Ukraine and Russia, but really that whole global picture. And it is an exceptionally complicated one right now. So my hat's really off to them and, of course, to the men and women you know, our armed forces and our civilians who serve in DOD and state and all the other agencies, you know, there are a lot of people who work really hard to get the facts and formulate the right responses and make sure that American interests are well represented and ready to take action when they need to. So there are, you know, literally a million and a half people or more who are trying to work these problems every day, and we have to thank them. Yes, we do. They're trying to, they're trying to forecast the future, which never usually works out very well for most people. Um, hard to do. It is hard to do. Uh, let's move on over to China. Our, you know, our, they're out there again. <laughs> yes, they are, aren't they? You know, China is just enough of a problem all by itself. <laughs> we yeah. sweep everything else aside because, you know, I think what we've come to realize over the last five years or so is that China is the threat that shapes our American way of life. How we respond to China is really going to be um, just the, the major challenge for America and for our allies over the next 5, 10, 20, and 30 years. Over the last five years, we've, we've realized, I think you see a very strong bipartisan consensus in Washington that China is a threat and a problem, mm-hmm. um, and that, is, that in itself is a great step to have taken. But now we have to start asking ourselves, 
what is it, where do we want to end up with China? You know, what type of relationship do we want to have? We saw the Trump administration um, take, go to the front lines with the tariffs and the trade wars. And then we saw, you know, COVID-19 happen. Meanwhile, we have, um, you know, a deteriorating situation in the Pacific, and it, now it's got some real specific flashpoints. We've seen the Chinese oppression of Hong Kong. Uh, we see continued military activity around Taiwan. And so, you know, it comes down to it. First of all, we need this big policy. And my point is, yes, we do need to contain China. You remember containment uh, from poli-sci 101. That was the yes. policy. Mm-hmm. during the Cold War, to contain Soviet Russia and the spread of communism. It was pretty simple. Uh, it was, um, you know, uh, took a lot of work to put into practice because that meant military containment around the globe. That's sort of what shaped America's superpower commitments and our alliances after World War II. The tougher thing with China, of course, is that China is such an economic force in a way that the communist Soviet Union never really was. So we deal with China on every level from uh, their trade war with Australia to the semiconductor market to what they may do in space. We simply, it's just a a containment problem that, that is that much bigger. But yes, we need to contain them. They do not respect the rule of law in the way that Uh, our Western societies do, and I think containment is the right policy for the U.S. versus China. Man, (laughs) I I can't even imagine being, you know, at the top of the government, no matter what, you know, what party it is, you know, every, every day, as you mentioned earlier on, every day you were faced with the potential danger from all of these outside sources and you have to determine well do i concentrate on china today or do i concentrate on russia today oh yeah what about korea um you know <laughs> and so on and so forth and, and speaking of since we have china we haven't heard much from north korea recently or lately boy have they been quiet and there's continued speculation about how much they were or were not impacted by coronavirus and mm-hmm. you know, they say they haven't been, but they really have shut down. So there's a lot of questions there about what happened. But with North Korea, um, so here's what's happened in the last couple of years. When the Trump administration first came in, and remember the summer of 2017, all the military activity and all the harsh words exchanged, well, at that point in time, China was still relatively willing to join us in quietly exerting pressure on North Korea to shape up a bit. That all changed when the trade war with China began. And China has pretty much now tucked North Korea back away and said, "Um, sit down, be quiet, and you are no longer (laughs) really part of this picture. So unfortunately, the progress that we saw with between North Korea and South Korea with uh, exchanges of visits and all sorts of promises of industrial cooperation, all that, that has really cooled down, too. And it leaves us wondering, where are we in terms of North Korea's weapons arsenal? They have so far kept the promise that Kim Jong-un made to President Trump back in 2017-2018 not to test long-range missiles. They fired off short-range missiles. They have done some 
engine test stand runs, they've tested this and that, but they've always stayed just below the threshold of that promise. And that's really good because we don't think that they quite have that intercontinental capability with a nuclear weapon right now, and we want to keep it there. We want to make sure that they haven't fully tested it out, because while we do have missile defenses on our U.S. West Coast up in Alaska and in California at Vandenberg Air Force Base, that missile defense system is set up just to handle a couple of missiles, not to handle a whole lot. So it's a good deterrent right now. But we want to keep North Korea, that rogue regime, um, below the threshold of really having an intercontinental nuclear missile capability, and we believe that's the case right now. We do think that they have some nuclear weapons. Um, and I, I look back and I see kind of an opportunity lost. I think Trump and Kim got closer to possibly forging an agreement, but then the larger issue of China's relationship in the world really intruded into that. Who knows what it might have turned into. So I'd say the two good takeaways are that North Korea has not built out its long-range arsenal and that we do at least know more about Kim Jong-un from the Singapore summit Mm -hmm. and the DMZ step across the final year and all that diplomacy. It didn't go as far as we would have liked to, but I'd say on the whole, the situation has improved in U.S.-North Korean relations. I think things are a little bit more stable. That certainly seems to be the view of our commanders in the Pacific. But we still haven't solved that North Korean problem, and that's, that is really a shame. Yeah, it is. And it's, I, I don't know. It's one of those no news is good news things, I think, uh, every once in a while out there. Um, before we get to to what's going on in in Israel right now, I, I, I did want to go back and look, take a real quick look at uh, technology. Um, part of today's program is that the, uh, the the Yankee Air Museum out here locally is air show is returning this year with the uh, Thunderbirds, the Air Force Thunderbird demo team, but they're also going to be demonstrating the F thirty five as part of the air show. And I wanted to know where do you see new technology going with um, jets and, and fighter jets and so forth. Oh, that's terrific that you'll have the F-35s out at the air show. Mm -hmm. There is an F-35 squadron from Hill Air Force Base in Utah that has a couple of planes over in France right now, and they're flying with the French Air Force, they call themselves L'Armée de l'Air. I can't really speak French, but it's a <laughs> wonderful Air Force some great pictures coming out from the partnership where you see F-35s training with the French Rafale jets. So it will be a real treat to see the F-35 in action. One thing you don't see by looking at the F-35 is what goes on in that cockpit. First of all, it's not a bunch of dials. It's a flat screen. Mm -hmm. So all the engines and sensors and targeting data and intelligence it all comes up on this gorgeous flat screen. And the F-35 has such sophisticated radar and other sensors that it's, it's really just miles ahead of conventional jets. Of course, the F-35 is also a stealth aircraft, mm -hmm. meaning that it's really tricky for enemy air defenses to pick it up on radar. The commanders sometimes like to deploy F-35s overseas just to watch <laughs> the adversaries up and down the Persian Gulf region, for example, flinch when they realize, oh, my gosh, something just came by and we didn't really see it, couldn't really handle it. So F-35 is, is tremendous aircraft. The Air Force also has 
a, a sort of new old friend in the F-15EX. You know, the F-15 is the mm-hmm. Eagle. It's been around for decades. Boeing's produced a new variant that's a bit improved with different engines and some new capabilities. And they've rolled off just a few from the production line in St. Louis. But F-15EXs have joined one of the big air combat exercises up in Alaska. So welcome to the F-15EX. One yeah. reason the Air Force wants it is because it can launch bigger hypersonic missiles when those become available. And for that matter, we have our B-52 bombers, which are the very old force but well-maintained. The B-52s are out testing hypersonic missiles as well. So right now the progress is in um, our current jets and our newest ones like F-35, uh, getting ready to load up some pretty nifty new air-to-air and air-to-ground weapons, some of which will be hypersonic weapons. Could you could you tell us what hypersonic means? Right. Hypersonic is really, really fast beyond <laughs> Mach 5 or Mach 6. Uh, we've been working on these for a long time, but they've really blossomed in the last few years. Part of the difficulty is getting that engine to go fast enough and then to have enough range to hit the target. But we have some... Um, Excellent hypersonic weapons in test right now for the Air Force and Navy and across the services. And we'll, you'll start to see these being fielded out to the fighter and bomber and attack squadrons within the next few years. Wow. Well, everything just gets going faster and faster. Oh, let's, let's, uh, let's end up our conversation today by talking about what is going on in Israel with Hamas and so forth. How do, how do you perceive what's happening? What do you think will eventually occur. Yeah, this is sort of the third war between um, Hamas operating out of the Gaza Strip against Israel. And we think about Hamas versus Israel, but Dale, this is really Iran's war. Uh, Iran um, has given some extra support and recognition to Hamas, which is a, uh, a designated terrorist group. However, they also are the predominant political group within Gaza. So Hamas has launched um, well over 3,000 small rockets into Israel. And, you know, Hamas is this tiny little strip. It's, it's t- about 25 miles long, about five miles wide on average. It's right there on the coast, um, uh, on, on the edge of the coast there, sort of between with Egypt down at the bottom and, and the light there along Israel, right? And they just launch these rockets indiscriminately. Now, Israel has a fantastic Iron Dome missile defense system, which is a little bit like our, um, our MLRS, our, the Army rocket system. Um, they're able to target and intercept a really high percentage of these missiles. You know, who knows in the end, but probably over 50 to 75 percent are being intercepted and shot down. You've seen all the interesting contrails. But... The sad thing here is that, you know, Iran is really the one, and they've come out and said, oh, the Iranians, they'll always tell you exactly what they're thinking. <laughs> so the head of the Revolutionary Guard came out and said, well, the missile attacks have reset the military balance. So Iran has basically egged on Hamas to do these attacks, to try to show that Israel is vulnerable. So it puts Israel in a really tough spot. They've got the missile defense system, but as you know, any strategy against missiles involves attack operations and attacking the source. But Israel has conducted a lot of uh, really quite precise airstrikes against Hamas, but because it's going into the Gaza Strip and this is a, there's some high urban concentrations, the Israeli defense forces will drop a building, but they inevitably 
um, as precise as they try to be, there are casualties, and we have seen over 500 civilian casualties within the Gaza Strip. Um, very, very sad. You know, whatever happens with a ceasefire, Iran is going to come away from this thinking that they are the winners, um, and this just proves out Iran's model, which is supporting whether it's the the, uh, the rebels in Yemen or um, attacks on Saudi Arabian oil facilities. Iran tactic is missile terror against Israel, and right now Hamas is happy to contribute to that. There's a larger issue here of Palestinian elections. Um, the Palestinians haven't held elections since 2006. They are supposed to do so this summer. Hamas, which is also a political party, has a chance of doing well in some of these elections. So the huge big issue there, and of course, questions about Netanyahu and his ability to form a stable government within Israel. Big important backdrop. But I think the takeaway here militarily is that Iran is really back and uh, providing weapons to Hamas. Hamas can also make some of their own. I saw one estimate that said there are probably still nine to 10,000 missiles left in the Gaza Strip. So this will be proof by Iran that their missile terror tactics work has put the U.S. and the European allies in a really tough spot. Um, but right now, Iran is the winner. Wow. You know, and, 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 and Iran is constantly, you know, sticking their fingers into everything in the Middle East. I'm not sure. What what do you think is their ultimate goal? I mean, other than get, I get... think their, their short-term goal here was to prove that even though after the death of Soleimani, which took place in January of 2020, that they've been able to come back as a terror force. And then they also really wanted to reverse some of the momentum of the Abraham Accords between Israel and the four uh, other states, uh, mm -hmm. UAE, et cetera, um, that were concluded right at the end of the Trump administration. They don't want Arab states to have normalized relationships with Israel. So that is part of their goal. And Iran, too, has elections and a change of power coming up. So Iran's goal with their terror is to target Israel and, of course, always to keep their own terroristic regime in place and oppressing the Iranian people. So a double-edged sword, but I'm afraid Iran has been pretty successful this time out. Doesn't seem like things get any better. That's that's the problem. Um, well, all right, a, a couple of minutes to, to go here. Um, let's. We haven't talked about the Space Force. So what, what's the Space Force up to? They don't get much press yeah. these days. The Space Force is um, the Space Force is now coming into its second full year of operation, and they've done a few interesting things. First, they uh, you know Space Force isn't just people from the Air Force; mm -hmm. they have um, officers and enlisted from the Army and from the Navy, and they're also starting to now enlist recruits directly into the Space Force, which is nice to see. Of course, they take young officers coming out of the academies. I think they took nearly 100 from the Air Force Academy this year. But the Space Force's big objective right now, in addition to setting up, is to try to build us a new satellite warning network. You know, we watch for uh, missiles with some really big satellites, but we just have a handful of them. They're really good at what they do and they watch for the heat of a missile launch to give us missile warning. Hmm. However, because there are only a handful of them, they're deemed as possibly vulnerable in the future. So Space Force is starting to build what they call the National Defense Space 
architecture. And that will be uh, several hundred small satellites that form a mesh network so that you can't just take one out and bring down the missile warning. And it's really neat. They're going to incorporate some great new technologies such as uh, laser communication between satellites on orbit. The technology's been around a while, but it hasn't been used in the way that Space Force wants to use it. And they'll start actually doing some of the launches for this initial part of the layer this summer. And then by about 2024, 2025, they expect to have maybe 300 of these small satellites up to watch and then send data among themselves and then transmit that data back down into a F-35 cockpit or onto, the, onto a, a Navy cruiser or into an Army HIMARS unit or someone mm-hmm. to be able to use that targeting data against enemy hypersonic missiles. So it's a really neat evolution as they build out this new constellation for national space defense architecture. Wow. As we come up to the uh, end of our discussion today, is there anything that, that you can think of that we need to be keep our eye out on that we haven't mentioned so far? Well, one big variable out there is climate change, which uh, the Biden administration has made a large priority for the Defense Department and for the State Department. Um, Biden convened a virtual Earth Day summit back in April of 2021, A lot of world leaders attended, but the real event coming up is a U.N. forum in Glasgow scheduled for November of this year. It's the follow-on to the 2015 Paris Climate Accords. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a push across U.S. foreign policy to get some of our key allies and some of our big uh, rivals like China roped into some climate agreements. It's really tough going because, of course, China is the world's top polluter. So we're watching to see, you know, what will Team Biden trade in order to try to get China to comply on greenhouse gas emissions limits. Sort of a new factor in defense and foreign policy. It's been around a while, but we're seeing Team Biden really elevate climate change as a national security imperative and not sure yet what that's exactly going to look like. So keep your eye on that one. Keep your eye on that one, which we will do. And, of course, oh, as always, we want to thank Dr. Rebecca Grant for being on Veterans Radio and keeping us up to date on what's going on around the world, um, technologically, politically, and everything else in between. So, Dr. Grant, thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you later on in the year, and hopefully things can stay fairly peaceful. I hope so, too. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's our program for today, but I have two assignments for you. Number one, Don't forget to register for the jacket from U.S. Wings. We're going to be choosing a winner again next weekend. So go to Veterans Radio, click on the flight jacket, and register to win. We will be announcing that winner uh, next week on our Memorial Day program. The number two thing that comes into, into play next week actually is that because it is Memorial Day, we here at Veterans Radio want to honor what you and your veterans community are doing to honor all the men and women who sacrifice their lives. We want you to let us know by going to veteransradio.net, click on Contact Us, or you can send me a direct email. That's dale at veteransradio.net. So we can tell our audience what you are doing, wherever you are across the country. We'd like to have you on the program to talk about what you're doing. Are you having a parade? Are you having a ceremonial flag burning? Are you having a picnic? What is it that you are doing to commemorate these 625,000 
men and women who, who paid that ultimate price. So please, let us know what it is that you are doing to commemorate Memorial Day. We really want the rest of the country to know that it's just not Washington, D.C. It's just not thunder over Michigan. It's just not the rolling thunder. It's every big town, little town, hamlet, whatever it is. Please, we would really like to honor you for what you do for our veterans. The other thing, of course, is to go to VeteransRadio.net. We have merchandise available. We've got 18 years worth of programming that you can listen to on Veterans Radio, so we want to make sure that you do that as well. So until next week, this is Dale Throneberry. Thank you very, very much for listening. Until then, you are dismissed.